From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Landlords that rent offices to federal agencies have new marching orders for cleaning those buildings so workers can return. The General Services Administration will send lease amendments to building owners that require cleaning of high-contact services once a day with both soap and an approved disinfectant. Federal News Network reports agencies will be responsible for cleaning phones, computers, and other equipment the agencies own. The Defense Department has a strategic document to frame its activity in space. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Space Policy Stephen Kattay says the new defense space strategy is necessary because, quote, the U.S. space enterprise was not built for the current strategic environment. Defense News reports Kattay says the strategy will help the department transition from using space as a supporting domain to considering it as a potential location for conflict. Four areas of common concern top the list of challenges to getting CARES Act money out the door, according to the new Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. Financial management, grant management, information technology security and management, and protecting health and safety were the four most common themes in the PRAC survey of 37 inspectors general. The PRAC says it's releasing the survey to raise awareness and increase transparency of the pandemic response. The Defense Department has almost $2 trillion in weapons system investments on the books. The Pentagon says it's tracking program costs better, but the Government Accountability Office says there's still work to do to improve. Frank Kendall, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and former Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, thanks very much for coming on. The remarks from the GAO are in their 18th annual Defense Acquisitions Annual Assessment. Did you see anything in this one that you haven't seen in the last 17 of these, Frank? <laughs> well, the, the GAO has never changed its methodology, and the department has had an issue with that as far back as I can remember. Um, the, the way the GAO does this is it just counts the expected amount of money the department will spend on a program and then compares it to previous years. And whatever change may have occurred, including changes in numbers of quantities, uh, it reports a total cost number and then reflects that as cost growth. You know, sometimes that's actual cost growth and the things are, you know, costs have exceeded the expectation. In other cases, it's simply the department buying more of something. So that's that's cost growth, too, according to this report. So it's a bit misleading. As I go through this work, 250 some pages of it, Frank, is there a way for me as an outsider to discern the distinction between the two things that you just that you just suggested, the two methodologies? Uh, the GAO is up front. It says up front that there is cost growth associated with quantity change. It points out one or two specific programs where that that occurred. Uh, so I think they're being upfront about it. Uh, they also do talk about changes relative to baselines in some cases, which I think gives a more meaningful indicator of where the department uh, where, where things are. What I wondered as I read as I read this report, Frank, is what this is happening in the context of, and that is all of the changes to your former office, all of the reforms mm -hmm. that the Senate Armed Services Committee has or, and, and the House Armed Services Committee have proposed and made through the National Defense Authorization Act changes over the last, I guess, five years or longer now. Are we seeing any mm -hmm. manifestation either in this GAO report or in the results the department's getting more broadly 
that any of those changes, reforming your old office, devolving authority to the service chiefs, some of these other things, are making any difference for the good or the bad as far as changing the way that the Pentagon actually gets stuff? Uh, well, I would, re I would refer to them as changes as opposed to reforms. Whether they're good or bad changes, I think, remains to be seen. Um, as I look at the report, the thing that I'm paying some attention to is the so-called mid-tier acquisition programs. Uh, as, as the report indicates, the MDAPs are relatively stable at relatively small cost growth. The way the mid-tier acquisition programs are generally reported is that the quantities associated with them are very small. And the reason for that is that the report only covers the initial phase of prototype production. It does not cover uh, what's going to happen after that. And in many cases, those plans just don't exist. The, the mid-tier acquisition prototypes are being done as an, essentially an experiment. And then at a future time, the department will decide whether to buy more of them or not, or whether to go into another development phase. Uh, my apprehension is that in many cases, they'll have to go into another development phase, that they'll have a risk reduction prototype or an experimental prototype that will not be suitable for production at scale, uh, for fielding, and for equipping units in militarily meaningful numbers. So there'll have to be an entire another phase of development and testing uh, and production before that actually starts. Uh, if that's the case, uh, the mid-year acquisition programs are really a form of risk reduction, uh, the, the earliest phase of a normal life cycle of a program. Uh, they're not actually a faster, better way to acquire programs. Uh, but again, that's, that, that, that work will come to fruition, generally speaking, in the next administration, somewhere in the middle of it. And we'll see what kind of progress has actually been made and what kind of decisions have to be made about where to go next. Your comment uh, a few moments ago, Frank, about it being too soon to tell whether the changes that the committees and the department have made in the acquisition structure, um, when, when is it possible to know? Because we see the, the Hask and Sask are already proposing changing, or thinking about at least, changing the office of the chief management officer to the degree that the CMO has oversight over the business processes of the Pentagon. There are changes potentially there if that job changes or goes away again. At what point do we know that things are working the way that they're intended to work in order to leave them alone and do what they are supposed to do? I think if you understand programs and how programs actually are fielded, how new product development is actually done, it's pretty clear where we are already. Uh, if you don't understand that, you're going to have to wait a few years till things are much more visible. Um, what the department effectively has done is embark on a number of high-risk programs. And I've seen a lot of high-risk programs, and I know where they where they lead. So that, that will, again, manifest itself sometime in the next administration. Uh, from the time the new administration started putting these practices into effect till they could put money on contract was a year or so. It takes two or three years uh, before things start to become evident in the program. Generally, you can keep things looking good that long. Uh, and then you start to see uh, actual results that you expected not happen. Uh, this is the history of an awful lot of programs. So uh, I, I think that the way we're headed has been pretty clear. It's been pretty clear to me for a long time. I, I like to say sometimes that happy programs are all happy in the same way and that unhappy programs are each unhappy in their own way, uh, paraphrasing Tolstoy. Uh, a happy program has well-defined requirements, uh, a good approach to managing technical risk, a reasonable schedule and reasonable funding, 
and a fair chance of success. And you can anticipate some schedule overrun cost increases, maybe the need to make some requirements adjustments. But you have a program that you understand and it is reasonably well under control. If you're hoping things will work out and trying something to see what happens uh, and not doing enough to, to plan for risk or to do all the design work that's necessary to get a product that you really want to put into production and field to the services, uh, you get a predictable result. There are various ways to do not do the several things I mentioned, uh, and I'm seeing some of all of that right now. Frank Kendall, thanks very much as always. Great to get your insight. Thanks, Fred. It's good to be with you as always. Up next, the cybersecurity issues that aren't getting enough attention. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to avoid some of the biggest cyber pitfalls out there right now. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. A new flaw in Intel processors could let attackers create malware that antivirus systems can't pick up. Taking a look at some of the biggest cyber vulnerabilities to watch out for, Bob Bigman, founder of 2B Secure and former chief information security officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Bob, if you've told me anything over the years, it's that the bad guys are always looking for opportunities. How are they looking at the new remote work environment and how are they looking at the equipment that people are using? as a possibility, as a gateway for new vulnerabilities like this. Uh, good morning, Francis. Well, the, the phrase I keep hearing is uh, the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> uh, which, which is not positive. So uh, obviously uh, these, and, and basically now there's two or three serious security risks at the hardware, firmware level in the uh, Intel chip base which, uh, you know, most people at home, frankly, don't upgrade their firmware, use older PCs, uh, and are at risk for exploits against uh, firmware in their, in their clients, in their, in their desktops when they connect to the, to the corporate network. The, the problem for this is none of the security tools that we currently use, even those that are provisioned to us by our, our corporations on our laptops, won't even work unless we fix or unless Intel fixes uh, these vulnerabilities. So here's the challenge. Most folks, I mean, I talk about this stuff every single day. I know what firmware is conceptually. If you told me I needed to upgrade my firmware on something, I wouldn't have the slightest idea where to begin to do that, Bob. So when you have a federal agency that has X number of people now working in remote locations, and you're not sure necessarily who's doing the work that day on your devices and who's doing it on their own devices. Uh, this has the potential to be a tremendous mess, doesn't it, Bob? Uh, it is. Uh, and, and the problem is that most organizations use a variety of different hardware bases over many years, right? And each hardware vendor has their own interface. You know, Dell, HP, Lenovo, all have their own different interfaces for how they update firmware. Some use the Intel provided uh, active management technology capability. Some don't, some have their own. Um, some have it turned off, some have it turned on. So yes, um, it, it, it really has, it has uh, you know, what I'll call it is, it's the underbelly here in cybersecurity, which takes a lot more attention, takes a lot more time and thought to how you're gonna actually do this. But uh, most organizations, to be honest with you, that I consult with, haven't even even begun to consider how they're going to update remote firmware. Um, 
And, and then worst of all, we just learned that uh, the Intel AMT engine itself, which is the foundation for how all this firmware gets updated, whether it's on top or under Dell or Lenovo or whatever, uh, it has flaws in it. They uncovered two serious remote execution holes in the uh, AMT software. So this, I mean, it, it just doesn't get, you know, any better. <laughs> what fixes these problems long-term though? What, what do we do? What does one do? What does some company do in order to fix this so that the PCs that we're buying for the next three years, five years, I mean, agencies are on three-year refresh cycles generally. So if I'm buying stuff today, right, right. What, what do I do so that I'm not buying something and installing it that's going to be vulnerable for the next three years? Yeah, well, there's no guarantee you're not going to be doing that. Uh, you know, we, we've now, we're now in the uh, year four uh, since Spectre meltdown of Sirius Intel in this chip. And by the way, other chip vendors have serious flaws in their, in their um, firmware as well. Yeah, I'm working with one company, one agency, and what we're doing is we're actually setting up a firmware security organization uh, in their cyber shop in which basically they're, they're going to agree corporately that they're going to use a certain set of laptops and desktops that are easier to support, that have a better um, instrumentation capability to update and secure firmware, and just overall have better controls over how to do that. Uh, Microsoft just yesterday announced that they're going to come out with a capability to do scanning of firmware for vulnerabilities. Not exactly sure how that's going to work, but at least the attention is now getting paid by the major software vendors and, and system vendors. So there are ways to address it, but you know, it just takes planning and, and, and thought. Bob Bigman, thanks very much as always. Appreciate you coming on. Sure. Thank you. Up next, a new type of drug for groundbreaking research at the National Cancer Institute. Straight ahead on Government Matters, curing a rare form of cancer. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. For patients with hairy cell leukemia, a new drug that uses bacterial toxins could be the perfect treatment. The disease is rare, but the drug and its new approach could have applications in treatment of a variety of different cancers. Dr. Ira Paston is a distinguished investigator at the National Cancer Institute. He's a finalist for the Paul A. Volcker Career Achievement Award, one of the Service to America medals. Dr. Paston, thanks very much for coming on the program. The bottom line here is you cured cancer. You cured one kind of cancer. Tell me about the progress, the process that you undertook with your colleagues to get to this achievement, sir. So I've been at NIH all of my career. And uh, I'm trained as a physician, but I did basic research for most of my career and was working on receptors and how proteins entered cells when we began to work with a toxin from bacteria, protein made by bacteria that entered cells, and was struck by how effectively the toxin could kill the cell 
And we thought if we could harness the toxin's power by attaching it to an antibody, we could make a new drug, which is called an immunotoxin. So we began to do this more than 20 years ago. And we spent 20 years ago improving and perfecting. We began to do clinical trials maybe 12, 15 years ago and continue to improve and perfect until we had an agent that was active in many patients and could be made reasonably cheaply and was uniform and didn't have too bad side effects. So that is the agent we have developed, which has the name Moxity. So toward the end of the clinical development, which we did at NIH, uh, we licensed the drug. We, NIH, licensed the drug to AstraZeneca, and they were able to do worldwide clinical trials, showed it was effective and safe, and obtained FDA permission to, to market it. The transition... I'm sorry, please go ahead, doctor. Okay, so the principle of using antibodies to target poisons to cells is well known, and in most cases, drug companies use uh, small molecule poisons, antibody drug conjugates. Our approach is a type of that. The advantage of using a toxin is that it will kill drug-resistant cells. So in the hairy cell leukemia patients we are treating, they've had chemotherapy, they no longer respond to chemotherapy, so our drug can come in and work uh, to kill the cells uh, because it kills drug-resistant cells. The transition here is pretty incredible, doctor. The bio from the Partners for Public Service said that patients, uh, or before this work began, patients generally responded, but 30 to 40 percent relapse after five to 10 years due to resistance to cancer drugs, as you just described. Now, eight or 10 years later, some of these patients have survived without any detectable cancer. I mean, what is, what is that like to walk around knowing that you have saved hundreds of people's, thousands of people's lives, doctor. That's an incredible career accomplishment. Well, not yet thousands, <laughs> um, but yes. So um, it just sort of catches up on you. The first patient who responds, even if he just seems better and not cured, I say cured carefully, although we do have patients who've been uh, alive now for more than 10 years who have no detectable cancer in their bone marrow. So we, we think it's likely they're cured, but we won't know until time goes by and if they die of something else, then we're sure they've been cured of their leukemia. Doctor, you mentioned that you've been working at NIH for 60 years. Certainly there would have been opportunities for you to go do something else. What has been the the anchor that kept you at NIH for that period of time. Why do you want to keep going back there every day, even at uh, after such a long career? Yes, so working at NIH is a real joy. Um, you have wonderful colleagues, wonderful support system. Uh, you, have an, you have a kind of support that enables you to do high-risk research, such as this kind of research we've been doing and enables you to keep doing it for long enough to make it work. Um, 
So for me, for my career, and for many others of my friends, being at NIH has been a wonderful place to, to have a career. Doctor, we have about 30 seconds left. Is there some of this work that will be applicable potentially to other kinds of cancers too? So uh, we are trying to test this drug and other kinds of lymphomas related to leukemia. We have plans to start a trial fairly soon. And we are using this approach to treat mesothelioma using a different antibody to target the protein to mesothelioma cells. And we've had some success so far, but not enough constant success to take it forward for a regular treatment. But that's our goal and that's what we're working on. Dr. Paston, congratulations on just an incredible career and thank you, uh, congratulations for your selection as a finalist for a SAMI and thank you for your service to the country. It's wonderful to talk to you, sir. Thank you very much. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.